Section 19 of A History of the Four Georges in Four Volumes, Volume 1 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 17. Osnabrück, Osnabrück. The impeachment of Lord Macclesfield was ascribed, rightly or wrongly, to the influence of the Prince of Wales, the comparative leniency of Lord Macclesfield's punishment to the favour and protection of the king. Macclesfield was a justly distinguished judge. He had had the highest standing at the bar, had risen step by step, until from plain Thomas Parker, the son of an attorney, he became Chief Justice of the Court of King's Bench, then one of the Lords Justices of the Kingdom, in the interval between Anne's death and the arrival of George I, and finally Lord Chancellor. George made him baron and subsequently earl of Macclesfield. He had always borne a high reputation for probity as well as for generosity until the charge was made against him on which he was impeached. He was accused of having, while Lord Chancellor, sold the offices of masters in chancery to incompetent persons and men of straw, unfit to be entrusted with the money of suitors, but whom he had publicly represented to be persons of great fortunes and in every respect qualified for that trust, with having extorted money from several of the masters, and with having embezzled the estates of widows and orphans. On May 6, 1725, the managers of the House of Commons appeared at the bar of the House of Lords and presented their articles of impeachment against Macclesfield. The trial took place at the bar of the House and not in Westminster Hall, where impeachments were usually carried on, and it lasted until May 26th. There was nothing that could be called a defense to some of the charges, and as to others, Lord Macclesfield simply insisted that he had followed the example of some of his most illustrious predecessors, and that the monies he received as presents were reckoned among the known perquisites of the Great Seal, and were not declared unlawful by any act of Parliament. The Lords were unanimous in finding Macclesfield guilty, and condemned him to be fined thirty thousand pounds and to be imprisoned in the tower until the fine had been paid the motion that he be declared for ever incapable of any office place or employment in the state was however rejected as was also a motion to prohibit him from ever sitting in parliament or coming within the verge of the court it would certainly seem as if these motions ought to have been the natural and necessary consequences of the impeachment and the conviction if the conviction were just, and it was obviously just, then Lord Macclesfield had disgraced the highest bench of justice, and merely to condemn him to disgorge a part of his plunder was a singularly inadequate sort of punishment. George I, however, chose to ascribe the impeachment to the malice and the influence of the Prince of Wales, and when Macclesfield had paid the fine by the mortgage of an estate, the king undertook to repay the money to him. George actually did pay to Macclesfield one installment of a thousand pounds, but fate interposed and prevented any further payment. Macclesfield retired from the world and spent his remaining years in the study of science and in religious meditation. He died in 1732. His was a strange story. He had many of the noblest qualities. He had had, on the whole, a great career. It is not easy, if we may borrow the words which Burke applied to a more picturesque and interesting sufferer, to contemplate without emotion that elevation and that fall. 
During all the time of comparative quietude, we are not to suppose that there were no threatenings of foreign disturbance. The adherents of the Stuarts were never at rest. The controversies which grew out of the Treaty of Utrecht were always sputtering and menacing. Cardinal Fleury, a statesman devoted to peace and economy, had become Prime Minister of France. Other new figures were arising on the field of continental politics. Alberoni in exile and disgrace had been succeeded by a burlesque imitation of him, the Duke of Raperda, a Dutch adventurer who turned diplomatist, and had risen into influence through Alberoni's favor. In 1725, Raperda negotiated a secret treaty between the Emperor Charles VI and the King of Spain, and was rewarded with the title of Duke. He became Prime Minister of Spain for a short time, to be presently disgraced and thrown into prison, quite after the fashion of a royal favorite in the pages of Gil Blas. He was a fantastic, arrogant, feather-headed creature, an Alberoni of the Opera Buffa. He betook himself at last to the service of the sovereign of Morocco. England had a sort of reperda of her own in the person of the wild Duke of Wharton, the man whose eloquent and ferocious invective had contributed to the sudden death of Lord Stanhope, and who had since that time devoted himself to the service of James Stuart on the continent, and actually fought as a volunteer in the ranks of the Spanish army at the abortive siege of Gibraltar. It is to the credit of the sincerer and better supporters of the Stuart cause that they would not even still consent to regard it as wholly lost. They kept their eyes fixed on England, and every murmur of national discontent or disturbance became to them a new encouragement, a fresh signal of hope, a reviving incitement to energy. In England, men were constantly hearing rumors about the dissolute life of the Chevalier and his quarrels with his wife, Clementina Maria, a granddaughter of one of the kings of Poland. The loyalists here at home were ready to believe anything that could be said by anybody to the discredit of James and his adherents. James and his adherents were willing to be fed on any tales about the unpopularity of George I and the tottering condition of his throne. Nor could it be said that George was popular with any class of persons in England. If the reign of the Brunswicks depended on personal popularity, it would not have endured for many years. But the people of England were able to see clearly enough that George allowed his great minister to rule for him, and that Walpole's policy meant prosperity and peace. They did not admire George's mistresses any more now than they had done when first these ladies set their large feet on English soil. But even some of the most devoted followers of the Stuart cause shook their heads sadly over the doings of James in Italy, and could not pretend to say that the cause of morality would gain much by a change from Brunswick to Stuart. The end was very near for George. He was now an old man, in his sixty-eighth year, and he had not led a life to secure a long lease of health. His excesses in eating and drinking, his hot punch in his many mistresses, had proved too much even for his originally robust constitution. Of late he had become a mere wreck. He was eager to pay one more visit to Hanover, and he embarked at Greenwich on June 3, 1727, landing in Holland on the 7th of the month. He made for his capital as quickly as he could, 
but in the course of the journey he was attacked by a sort of lethargic paralysis early on june tenth he was seized with an apoplectic fit his hands hung motionless by his sides his eyes were fixed glassy and staring and his tongue protruded from his mouth the sight of him horrified his attendants they wished to stop at once and secure some assistance for the poor old dying king george however recovered consciousness so far as to be able to insist on pursuing his journey crying out with spasmodic efforts at command the words osnabrück osnabrück at osnabrück lived his brother the prince bishop the attendants dared not disobey george even at that moment and the carriage drove at its fullest speed on toward osnabrück no swiftness of wheels however no flying chariot could have reached the house of the prince bishop in time for the king when the royal carriages clattered into the courtyard of the prince bishop's palace the reign of the first george was over the old king lay dead in his seat lord townsend and the duchess of kendal were following in different carriages on the road an express was sent back to tell the grim news lord townsend came on to osnabrück and finding that the king was dead had nothing to do but to return home at once the duchess of kendal is stated to have shown all the signs of grief proper to be expected from a favourite she tore her hair at least she pulled and clutched at it and she beat her ample bosom and professed the uttermost horror at the thought of having to endure life without the companionship of her lord and master it is satisfactory however to know that she did not die of grief she lived for some sixteen years and made her home for the most part at kendal house near twickenham even such a man as george i may become invested by death with a certain dignity and something of a romantic interest legends are afloat concerning the king's later days which would not be altogether unworthy the closing hours of a great roman emperor george had his melting moments it would seem and not long before his death being in a pathetic mood he gave the duchess of kendal a pledge that if he should die before her and it were possible for departed souls to return to earth and impress the living with a knowledge of their presence he the faithful and aged lover would come back from the grave to his mistress when the duchess of kendal returned to her home near twickenham she was in constant expectation of a visit in some form from her lost adorer one day while the windows of her house were open a large black raven or bird of some kind raven would seem to be the most becoming and appropriate form for such a visitor flew into her presence from the outer air the lamenting lady assumed at once that in this shape the soul of king george had come back to earth she cherished and petted the bird it is said and lavished all her fondness and tenderness upon it what became of it in the end history does not allow us to know whether it still is sitting like the more famous raven of poetry it is not for us to guess probably when the duchess herself expired in seventeen forty three the ghastly grim and ancient raven disappeared with her why george i if he had the power of returning in any shape to see his mistress did not come in his own proper form it is not for us to explain one might be disposed to imagine that in such a case it would be the first step which would involve the cost and that there would be no greater difficulty for the departed soul to come back in the likeness of its old vestment of clay than to put on the unfamiliar and somewhat inconvenient form of a fowl perhaps the story is not true 
possibly there was no raven or other bird in the case at all. It may be that if a black raven did fly in at the Duchess of Kendall's window, the bird was not the embodied spirit of King George. For ourselves, we should be sorry to lose the story. Neither the king nor the mistress could afford to part with any slight element of romance wherewithal even legend has chosen to invest them. Another story, which probably has more truth in it, adds a new ghastliness to the circumstances of George's death. On November 13, 1726, some seven months before that event, there died in a German castle a woman whom the Gazette of the Capital described as the Electress Dowager of Hanover. This was the unfortunate Princess Sophia, the wife of George. Thirty-two years of melancholy captivity she had endured while George was drinking and hoarding money and amusing himself with his seraglio of ugly women. She died protesting her innocence to the last. In the closing days of her illness, so runs the story, she gave into the hands of someone whom she could trust a letter addressed to her husband and obtained a promise that the letter should somehow or other be delivered to George himself. This letter contained a final declaration that she was absolutely guiltless of the offence alleged against her, a bitter reproach to George for his ruthless conduct, and a solemn summons to him to stand by her side before the judgment seat of heaven within a year, and there make answer in her presence for the wrongs he had done her, for her blighted life and her miserable death. There was no way of getting the letter into George's hands while the king was in England, but an arrangement was made by means of which it was put into his coach when he crossed the frontier of Germany on his way toward the capital. George, it is said, opened the letter at once and was so surprised and horror-stricken by its stern summons that he fell that moment into the apoplectic fit from which he never recovered. Sophia, therefore, had herself accomplished her own revenge. Her reproach had killed the king. Her summons brought him at once within the ban of that judgment to which she had called him. It would be well if one could believe the story. There would seem a dramatic justice, a tragic retribution about it. Its very terror would dignify the story of a life that, on the whole, was commonplace and vulgar. But for ourselves, we confess that we cannot believe in the mysterious letter, the fatal summons, the sudden fulfillment. There are too many stories of the kind floating about history to allow us to attach any special significance to this particular tale. We doubt, even, whether if the letter had been written, it would have greatly impressed the mind of George remorse for the treatment of his wife he could not have felt. He was incapable of any such emotion, and we question whether any appeal to the sentiment of the supernatural, any summons to another, and an impalpable world would have made much impression on that stolid, prosaic intelligence and that heart of lead. Besides, according to some versions of the tale, it was not, after all, a letter from his wife which impressed him but only the warning of a fortune-teller, a woman who admonished the king to be careful of the life of his imprisoned consort, because it was fated for him that he should not survive her a year. This story, too, is told of many kings and other persons less illustrious. Much more probable is the rumour that Sophia made a will bequeathing all her personal property to her son, 
that the will was given to George I in England, in that he composedly destroyed it. If George committed this act, he seems to have been repaid in kind. His own will left large legacies to the Duchess of Kendal and to other ladies. The Archbishop of Canterbury gave the will to the new king, who read it, put it in his pocket, walked away with it, and never produced it again. Both these stories are doubted by some of the contemporaries of George II, but they were firmly believed in and strongly asserted by others who seem to have had authority for their belief. At all events, they fit in better with the character and surroundings of both princes than the tragic story of the letter and its fearful summons, the warning of the fortune-teller, or the soul of the dead king revisiting the earth in the funereal form of a raven. There is not much that is good to be said of George I. He had a certain prosaic honesty and was frugal amid all his vulgar voluptuousness. He managed the expenses of the court with creditable economy and regularity. The officers in his army and his civil servants received their pay at the properly appointed time. It would be hardly worth while recording these particulars to the king's credit, but that it was somewhat of a novelty in the arrangements of a modern court for men to receive the reward of their services at regular intervals and in the proper amount. George occasionally did a liberal thing, and he more than once declared an interest in the improvement of university education. He is said to have declared to a German nobleman who was complimenting him on the possession of two such kingdoms as England and Hanover, that a king ought to be congratulated rather on having two such subjects as Newton in the one country and Leibniz in the other. We fear, however, that this story must go with the fortune-teller and the raven. We cannot think of dull, prosaic George uttering such a monumental sort of sentiment. He cared nothing for literature or science or art, he seems to have had no genuine friendships. He hated his son, and he used to speak of his daughter-in-law, Caroline, as that she-devil the princess. Whatever was respectable in his character came out best at times of trial. He was not a man whom danger could make afraid. At the most critical moments, as, for instance, at the outbreak of the rebellion in 1715, he never lost his head. If he was not capable of seeing far, he saw clearly, and he would look coming events steadily in the face. On one or two occasions, when an important choice had to be made between this political course or that, he chose quickly and well. The fact that he thoroughly appreciated the wisdom and the political integrity of Walpole speaks, perhaps, his highest praise. His reign on the whole was one of prosperity for England. He did not love England, never up to the very end cared for the country over which destiny had appointed him to rule. His soul to the last was faithful to Hanover. England was to him as the state wife whom for political reasons he was compelled to marry, Hanover as the sweetheart and mistress of his youth to whom his affections, such as they were, always clung, and whom he stole out to see at every possible chance. George behaved much better to his political consort, England, than to the veritable wife of his bosom. He managed England's affairs for her like an honest, straightforward, narrow-minded steward. We shall see hereafter that England came to be governed much worse by men not nearly so bad as George I. 
to do him justice he knew when he ought to leave the business of the state in the hands of those who understood it better than he this one merit redeemed many of his faults and perhaps may be regarded as having secured his dynasty frederick the great described george as a prince who governed england by respecting liberty even while he made use of the subsidies granted by parliament to corrupt the parliament which voted them he was a king frederick declares without ostentation and without deceit and who won by his conduct the confidence of europe this latter part of the description is a little too polite kings do not criticize each other too keenly in works that are meant for publication but the words form on the whole an epitaph for george which might be inscribed on his tomb without greater straining of the truth than is common in the monumental inscriptions that adorn the graves of less exalted persons End of chapter seventeen